Hopefully you find Genesis 16. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Now, Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. So after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abraham's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt at her mistress. And Sarah said to Abraham, may the wrong done to me be on you. I give my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abraham said to Sarai, behold, your, servants is, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listed, listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beherla Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we think about this passage together. Father, we need your help every time we come to your word, and so we pray again that you help us, help us to see what it is you want us to see, help us to hear what it is you're saying. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would be soft and ready to hear and ready to respond. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder what you do with frustrated desires. Frustrated desires, and it seems like God is slow to act. Well, that's the question that we see here addressed in Genesis 16, isn't it? And it comes after Genesis 15, the famous chapter 15, where God had reiterated his promise to Abraham about him becoming this great nation. Remember, he had brought him outside and told him to look up into the sky, look at all the stars. And what did God say? God said this. He said, so shall your offspring be. 
God had said to Abraham that his very own son would be his heir. And so there's great sense of hope and excitement, isn't there? As we get to the end of chapter 15, there's this great sense of expectation. And then we start in the chapter 16. The expectation has not yet been met. And here we find ourselves exposed to the lived reality of the pain, the deep, deep, deep pain in this couple's marriage. Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. And we can sense something of the pain of this wife, can't we? Some of you know what that pain is like. And for Sarah here in this culture, there would have been probably a, a sense of failure, perhaps. The normal expectation of marriage is that there might be fruit in the sense of children. It's one of God's purposes in marriage. And as you read through the Bible, you'll see that children are only ever seen as a good gift from God. Certainly something that the Bible speaks of only ever in the sense of as a a blessing from God. And here we have Sarah and Abraham, and they were very much open to God blessing them in this way. They were actively seeking after God's blessing, and yet month after month, Sarah was not pregnant. So it's a deeply sad situation for Abraham and Sarah, as it is for any couple who find themselves struggling with infertility. But what makes this even more striking is this. God himself had made them a promise that they would indeed have children, a child. We see that back in chapter 15, verse 4. It's really quite explicit. God says, your very own son shall be your heir. And so it's not just hopeful desire in their case, but one where God had clearly told them it would come about. And yet here is Sarah. She's aged 75, and at this point, She's completely given up hope. Maybe you're 75 and you're here and and you're not expecting to have children at this point. Well, neither was she. She was thinking, well, maybe at 65, 10 years ago, whenever we came into the promised land, maybe then it seemed far-fetched, but now, 75, it looked like all hope had slipped away. Not sure how good you are at waiting. (laughs) Often it's something we're, we're not good at, isn't it? I'm a, I'm a child of 90s dance music. That's what we played uh, around our house. All my brothers and sisters are older, so I know all those tunes. And so, you know, the lyrics of I know what I want and I want it now, they just ring round in my head and they ring true in my heart often. And it's not, like, it's not like Abraham and Sarah hadn't given it a really good go. They've been in the promised land for 10 years. First three highlights that they've been living there for, for that long, and, and no babies have arrived. And so Sarah has been, well, she's become frustrated, hasn't she? She's been frustrated by God's lack of action in this regard, and so she decides that it's time to take it into her own hands, isn't it? She has a servant whose name is Hagar, and the, the plan is, well, it's pretty simple, isn't it? You can just imagine the conversation that maybe happened before the light was switched off one bedtime, and she says to Abraham, Abraham, I have a great plan. I have a great plan. Abraham, God has prevented me from getting pregnant for all of this time, and so I've come up with a workaround. Here's what we'll do. Why don't you take my servant? Take Hagar. You sleep with her. If she falls pregnant, well, then we'll take the, the child that she bears, and we'll, we'll bring that child up as our own child. What she says about God preventing her from having children is is true, isn't it? 
It's a, it's a hard providence. Theologically, it's true, though, isn't it? God is sovereign over all things, hard providences as well as the sweet providences. That's one of the lessons that we pick up from the book of Job, isn't it? But I wonder what you think about Sarah's idea that she comes up with. Actually, it was an idea that was quite normal and completely acceptable in the society at the time. And basically how it worked was this. If a, if a wife was not able to produce a child within two years, they would have one of their servants act like a, like a surrogate mother. And then the child who was born would be taken on by the chief wife as their own. And so for a, a barren mother, this, this was a perfectly acceptable way in order to get what she so desperately wanted, wasn't it? Well, here we need to see that not everything that's seen as acceptable in culture is a faithful avenue for the Christian. Not everything that's seen as acceptable in the culture is a faithful avenue for the Christian. And so breaking the marriage bond between one man and one woman in order to satisfy a good desire for children is not a morally acceptable way for the believer to act. And this is really, really important for us to hear, not just with regards to seeking children, but in every aspect of our lives. We must not compromise with regards to right and wrong in order to bring about the desired end result. Do we hear that? We must not compromise on what's right and wrong in order to bring about the desired end result, even if even if the desired end result is something that you believe to be good in, in and of itself. Let's so take the, the example that we see here in this passage. Not every possible means of bringing a child into the world is morally acceptable. So we live in a, live in a world that almost convinces us that children are a right and that everyone should be able to have a child if you want one whether you're married or single or in a heterosexual relationship or a homosexual relationship. And the speed with which the fertility industry is moving and making options open to people with regards to seeking to have children, well, there's so many options that have never, ever had to be considered before, and now they're all set out before us. And some of the options that are set even before married couples might seem good and helpful, but many of them are not. And Sarah seems to have convinced herself that the option that she's come up with, well, she's justified it because she's looked at the resultant offspring that she hopes to have and thinks, well, surely this is a, this is a way forward. You know, she wrestled it through in her, in her head, and she's convinced herself that this is a morally acceptable way to proceed. And somehow that godly motive to have covenant children surely justified what she was advocating. Or at least that's what she must have concluded. I wonder, do you, do you ever find that? Do you ever find that a deep, 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 deep longing and desire for something? Something that is good in and of itself brings you moving further and further and further along a line of what you would have said was morally acceptable. Because that deep desire that kind of blurs the lines. And so what you know to be right and wrong, you you kind of move further and further and further away from it. Why? Because the deep desire almost clouds your vision in terms of what God's Word says is acceptable and good. I mean, we can be, we can be hard on Sarah as we look at the story, 
as it unravels and Abraham and Sarah, they find themselves in this bigger and bigger mess. And we can say, well, we can see where it all started. We can shut it from the sidelines. Don't do it. Don't do this. This, is, this has got disaster written all over it. And yet, we know in our own hearts that's a temptation, isn't it? We gradually move from what's morally acceptable to, to something that's much more greater, something that we know we should not do. Why? Because, because we have a deep desire within our heart. We know what we want, and we want it now. You desire to be married, but there's no decent Christian blokes around. And so you waited, maybe you've done your 10 years like Sarah here, and you think, well, I've done my 10 years of waiting for a good Christian man, and none has came around. And so there's this really nice guy at work. He's, he's kind, he's caring, he's even funny. I mean, there's very few of those, isn't there? And so you think, well, he's not a Christian. He's not a Christian, but... Do you know, he's a lovely guy. Uh, maybe in the future he'll come to church with me and maybe, maybe then he'll become a Christian. And so you decide, you know what, I'm going to date this guy. And you start off down this road. The road that you know, the Bible is really clear that you should not head down on. And, and, and yet you head in that direction. Before you know it, you find yourself married to someone who isn't a Christian. And what you needed was someone to, to pull you aside and to tell you the truth. You know, someone who was slightly outside of the desire, someone who hadn't let the desire blur their thinking. You needed someone to pull you aside and say, look, here's what you need to know. Here is what God's word says really clearly. Do not deviate from it because it is not the path to blessing. And maybe you're here this evening, whatever the situation might be, and maybe you, you realize that's where you are. Can I encourage you to, to chat to some of the elders here, to chat to Al, chat to myself, try and find out what does the Bible actually say about the situation that I'm in? What is the good and right way to go? And what is the wrong way to go? Maybe they might need some time to go away and think about it and come back to you, or maybe, maybe it'll be clear and obvious to them and they should say, actually, here's the good way forward. And they can advise you there and then. Or maybe you've got a, a godly friend, a wise godly friend, a wise godly friend that you know will actually tell you what you need to hear even, even if it's not easy to hear it. And those friends are priceless, okay? So if you've got a friend like that, hold on to them and use them, go and speak to them, ask them for godly wisdom and advice, seek them out and weigh up what they say with scripture. Look at the scripture and say, is this what scripture is saying? And if it is, don't deviate from it because it is not the way to blessing. Well, maybe... Maybe as we look at Abraham, the man of faith in the last few chapters, you think, well, Abraham is surely that man. <laughs> and so as Sarah, the wife, goes to her, her husband, you're thinking, surely Abraham is the one who's going to recognize that this is not a good idea. This is not a faithful way to go in God's eyes. And so surely he, as the head of the household, you know, would, would really step up into his manly rule, that he would protect his wife from error, gently correcting her, and refusing to go along with her idea. And we'd rather turn around and say, like, let's, let's trust God with this. That's what, we're, that's what we're hoping as we read the story, isn't it? And yet, as we read on, we see that is not the case, is it? It's not the case. No, rather, chapter 16 continues to unveil the ripples of Genesis 3, doesn't it? 
We've seen it so often, the ripples of Genesis 3 through all of this section that we've been working through in Genesis. And here we have Sarah, like Eve, coming to her husband and encouraging him to doubt in God's good provision and plans. Rather than listening to God's word and trusting it, we're told that Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. Doesn't that sound familiar? And then the echoes of Genesis 3 continue. She took and she gave, this time not the fruit, but her servant to her husband. And it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because, do you know, we, we expect Satan to come after us. We expect Satan's attack, but often we don't expect the ways in which Satan might seek to do that. Because sometimes Satan can use those closest to us, those whom we love the most, those who maybe love us the most. And yet Satan in his sneaky and subtle ways can use them in order to tempt us off course. I'm a, I'm a people pleaser, okay? <laughs> I'm a I'm someone who doesn't really like conflict at all. That's kind of my my default position. And so I know that my tendency is to avoid conflict at all costs and to please people as much as I can. And I look out here and I don't see anyone smiling, so this is not going well. (laughs) Now, those tendencies are not bad in themselves. The fact that I I don't want to go in and wreak havoc, okay, that's probably a good thing in itself, okay? But I need to be really, really careful that those things, pleasing people and avoiding conflict, do not take precedence over obeying the words of my heavenly Father. That is really, really important. Now, that's the case in, in the church. That's the case with my wider family and my friends. And it's also the case in my marriage. And so what we witness with Abraham and Sarah is a warning to all of us this, here this evening who are married Because that is the closest relationship, isn't it? Two becoming one. And the temptation might be to go along with the other party for the sake of peace, even though you know that it is not right. That's the temptation, isn't it? Ian Duguid helpfully says it like this. He says, obedience to God must be more precious to us than our idols of domestic peace and harmony. Do you hear that? Obedience to God must be more precious to us than our idols of domestic peace and harmony. Now, this goes both ways, doesn't it? So wives can lead their husbands into sin, but husbands can also lead their wives into sin. And so let's be careful that the stronger on the day helps the weaker, always pointing to the truth and pointing to obedience of our Heavenly Father. Let's continue on the the passage, what happens as a result of the plan? Well, verse four, look with me. It's, it's pretty short and sharp and to the point, isn't it? And he went into Hagar and she conceived. Just like that, just like that. The, the speed of the conception must surely not have been lost on Sarah. There she is. She's been seeking to fall pregnant month after month after month, year after year after year. A decade has passed since they've been in the promised land. Many seeds have been sown and yet no children as a result. And then one night, just one night with Hagar, and she finds herself pregnant. That must have been really, really painful for Sarah, mustn't it? And as you look on, you could have been tempted to to misread God's providence here as as an approval of the plan, couldn't you? You know, something good, in this case, a child has come about, and so 
Surely God approved of the means to which this happened. But we need to be really, really careful in seeking to read God's providence in such a way. Just because God is gracious and slow to anger does not mean that he has somehow abandoned his law and what is good and what is right and what is just. But if we initially look at what is perceived as a, a positive outcome, maybe thinking it was God's approval, surely that would begin to wobble really, really quickly as you read on the story. Because not surprisingly, what happens? The relationship between Sarah and Hagar turns all sorts of sour, doesn't it? Because there's a, there's a reason. There's a reason as to why a man is to be faithful to his wife and not to sleep with another, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the motive. And so before long, the most trusted of servants has become a stench to Sarah. So how does Sarah respond? Does she realize that her idea has brought chaos to their home? Does she hold up her hands and say, do you know what? I need to take some responsibility here because it was my idea. Well, verse five, Sarah said to Abraham, may the wrong done to me be on you. So rather than holding up her hands and accepting at least some of the blame for, for what's taken place, she attributes it all to Abraham, doesn't she? And again, we see echoes of Genesis 3, don't we? When God confronts Adam and Eve after eating the fruit, what does Adam say? He says, Eve, her fault. <laughs> what does Eve say? Serpent's fault, not my fault. And so no one is willing to take responsibility for their own sin. And maybe you're here this evening and you recognize that in seeking to fulfill your desire, whatever that was, you have overstepped what is faithful. And you find yourself living in the consequences of that sinful decision. And maybe you're thinking, what am I supposed to do? Jeff, what am I supposed to do? I'm already in the midst of the situation. Well, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to recognize your sin. You're supposed to accept responsibility for your sin and then seek forgiveness from God who is only too aware of your sin and already seen it all play out. That's what we're supposed to do, isn't it? I think that's what God wants to remind Abraham and Sarah because that's what we see play out in the rest of the chapter. The Lord is a God who sees and hears and is gracious despite our actions. What happens next? Well, Sarah attributes the blame to Abraham, verse six. And how does he respond? Well, at this point, we're maybe hoping that he finally stands up to be the man that he's supposed to be, to be the head of the house. What does he do? Well, verse six, but Abraham said to Sarah, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarah dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. Was Abraham the man that we wanted him to be? No, again, he, he fails, doesn't he? And often, it's like this. Often, the, the one who is really hurting so deeply, what do they do? They, they lash out and they hurt someone else. And that's what we see. And when it comes to Abraham's lack of leadership, it, it reminds us of the Abraham that we met back in chapter 12, doesn't it? Just a few weeks ago. Whenever he took his family and headed for Egypt rather than staying in the land that God had promised. And just like Genesis 3, having ripples that reach us here in Genesis 16, so there are echoes of Genesis 12 that seem to reach us as well. Think about the similarities of what had happened because back then God had promised a land to Abraham right at the start of Genesis 12. But whenever he arrives in the land and he faces a famine, what does Abraham decide to do? Well, he takes it into his own hands, doesn't he? 
He takes it into his own hands and he heads to Egypt. And remember the chaos that ensued as a result of heading to Egypt. In fact, you have to wonder if that's where he picked up this servant, Hagar. She's an Egyptian. Is, is that where she came from? It looks like it. And now it's almost a rerun of exactly the same thing, isn't it? God has given the promise of a son, an heir. But when Abraham finds himself with a wife who is barren, he takes it into his own hands and he goes and he sleeps with one of her servants. And what happens? Chaos ensues. It's basically a a rerun of chapter 12, isn't it? And then after the harsh treatment from her mistress, Hagar, we're told she takes to the road. She's had enough. And so the next thing we know that she is found by a spring of water in the wilderness on the way to Shur. This is on en route back to Egypt. Here's a girl, she's had enough, and she is heading for home. But notice what happens, because who is it that seeks her out and finds her in the wilderness? Well, we're told it's the angel of the Lord, aren't we? And the angel speaks to her. And this is what the angel says. The angel says, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? Here's this Egyptian servant, and yet the angel of the Lord knows her by name and cares for her. Isn't that wonderful? And what does she say? Well, I'm fleeing my mistress, Sarah. And then here's one of the passages, great surprises, because look at the, the angel's response. He says, return to your mistress and submit to her. I mean, it's a, it's a message that in our, our culture, we might, be, we might be offended by that, <laughs> Do you know? Here she is, and what is it that God says? God says, Go back and fulfill your responsibility to a master who isn't kind and isn't pleasant. She was to stay and work, even when it wasn't fun, and she didn't love it. (laughs) It's verses like this that remind us that the Bible was not written by humans who were just trying to make up a nice God. Now, this God sometimes tells us things that we don't want to hear. Perhaps you're in a marriage and it doesn't look like one in the movies, <laughs> you know? Often there's friction. It doesn't feel like the love that you thought it would have. You don't go for date night because you really don't want to go for date night. You're really hoping that the other party leaves the house and goes out for the night so that you can enjoy a, a night of peace without winding each other up. I'm not talking about an abusive marriage here. I think that's a different scenario. But marriage is a covenant relationship. And in your vows of marriage, you promise to love them whether you feel like it or not, whether it feels like fun or not. And so love is an active choice, isn't it? And so when we enter into the covenant of marriage, we promise to love whether things get better or worse, richer or poorer, sickness or health. And the message for Hagar was stick with it, go back, submit to your mistress. And then the angel makes this promise. Do you see that? I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. <laughs> Do you think, how incredible. Not only does the angel seek her out, but he seeks to bless her. Listen to what the angel of the Lord said. He said, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He should be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over and against all his kinsmen. Now, we don't have time tonight to dwell too much on Ishmael, 
But what I want us to see is this. What is it that the angel says about the Lord? Well, verse 11, the Lord has listened to your affliction. This is a God who hears, isn't it? In fact, that's the the very meaning of the name Ishmael, is God hears. God hears. And then look at how Hagar responds to the angel in verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. And so I wonder, do you spot that? The God that the angel represents or whether this is God himself, scholars disagree. We're not going to spend time thinking about that tonight. But this is a God who sees, isn't it? A God who sees. A God who sees her and has revealed himself to be seen by her. Yahweh, the Lord, is a God who sees and a God who hears. And maybe you need to know that tonight. Whatever situation you are in, maybe you need to know that this is a God who sees and a God who hears. Whatever the frustrated desire might be, God sees and God hears. Maybe it's that you long to be pregnant and months and years have passed away like Sarah. Maybe you long to find a spouse and yet there doesn't seem to be any godly suitors. Perhaps you long to have a job that you enjoy and yet you never seem to find one. Perhaps you've had a pretty serious health diagnosis and you long to be, feel, to be healed and yet so far God has not chosen to act in that way. Maybe it's loneliness. Family seem busy and friends don't have time to come and call and visit. You fill in the blank. You need to know that God sees and that God hears. And so what should we do with this frustrated desire? When God seems slow to act, what should we actually do? Well, I think the message of Genesis 16 is this. We're to bring them to the Lord. We have a God who sees and a God who hears. And in fact, he wanted to remind Abraham and Sarah of that so much that he gives them a son through his wife's servant. And God is the one who names this son, isn't he? What's the name that he gives? He gives this little lad the name Ishmael. What does it mean? We've talked about it already. It means God hears. And it's almost as if this young boy growing up is to be a constant visual reminder to Abraham and Sarah. Every time they look at him, run about the house, what do they think? His name is Ishmael. What does it mean? God hears. What was God saying to them? Bring your struggles to me. Bring your struggles to me. Talk to me about those desires. Don't go off the path of obedience trying to manufacture and, and bring about a fulfillment to those desires in, in a, by yourself in a, in a different path, a path that is unfaithful. No, trust me in the plans that I have for you. Now, our situation isn't identical to Abraham and, and Sarah. They had a promise that their desire would indeed be met. God had promised them a son, and they just had to wait. And God doesn't promise any of us biological children. He doesn't promise us a husband or a wife. He doesn't promise us a a job that we love. He doesn't promise us health. But he does promise this. He does promise that ultimately all things work together for the good of those who love him. And so we can trust him with that. 
even if it doesn't feel good at the time. He does promise that for his people, he will never leave us nor forsake us. And just like we witnessed how God has seen and heard Hagar, God sees and hears you tonight, and he cares for you too. In fact, we, we see his care for us and how he sent his son Jesus Christ, don't we? Sent him to the cross for us. Our greatest need of, uh, is that of a savior, and, and what does God send? He sends us Jesus, a savior to seek and to save the lost. And for those who are trusting in Jesus tonight, well then, we are an answer to the promise that he made way back to Abraham. Isn't that a pretty cool thought? We're actually an answer. We are one of the stars in the sky that Abraham saw when he looked up. And so if you go out tonight and the, and the, star is, uh, the sky is full of stars, look up and think, I am one of those stars. I am represented by one of those stars in the sky. God keeps his promises. Notice that despite the fact that Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar had all contributed to the sinful decisions made and the resultant mess, God's grace did not dry up. Did you spot that? Oh, there are consequences for their sinful choices, absolutely. But God does not abandon them or toss them to the side as if they don't matter. He goes on to keep his promise, doesn't he? So isn't this God good? <laughs> isn't he good? Isn't there something incredibly attractive about this God that we read about in Genesis 16? And maybe you're here this evening and you're not a Christian. Maybe a lot of what we've been chatting about this evening you've, you've found hard and difficult and you're not entirely sure how to follow it. And yet, there is something about this God that, that attracts you. Something about this God that, that pulls you towards him. Can I encourage you to, to keep coming to church? Can I encourage you to, to get out your hands in the Bible and to start reading and, and meet this God through his word? Come and, come and chat to some of us afterwards if you want to follow up on that, but we would really love to be able to do that with you. And pray that the God who sees and hears will come and meet you in your need, whatever that is, and reveal himself to you. So what do we do with frustrated desires? We bring them to the God who sees and the God who hears, and we seek to walk in the paths of righteousness set before us, not deviating off the track of faithfulness, seeking to bring them about in another way. We come to the God who hears and sees and who is able to answer in whatever way he sees fit. Let's pray. Lord, help us to trust that the way of righteousness is really the way to a blessed life. Help us to be obedient to you even when our earthly desires are not met. Thank you that you hear us and you see us even in the midst of our pain and sorrow and deep longings that we have within our hearts. And so Lord, we pray that tonight you'd help us to trust in your good provision because you're a heavenly father who knows how to care for his children. Lord, help us to be faithful as we seek to follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.